I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of James as we continue our series, Real Faith, uh, Real Life. And uh, already this morning, you've seen real faith and real life lived out. This morning, you got up and amidst a myriad of, of different things that you could be doing with your time this morning, whether it would be hobbies or, or, or a job or spending time uh, with your friends or family, you've chosen to be here. You've made a decision, a conscious decision, that being in the house of God on, uh, on this glorious Sunday morning is an important part. Now, you've done it uh, as a desire to learn more about God and to honor God with your time. And that's living a real faith in real life, but it goes on more than that because you didn't just come to be spectators this morning, you came to participate, participate in singing, participating by encouraging those who have come and attended with you this morning to grow them and to make them more like Jesus through your interaction with them. And then finally, we have witnessed what the real faith looks like through the first steps of baptism this morning. We're going to see seven more people in the second service get baptized, uh, saying uh, instead of following the ways of this world, instead of going their own way and being a friend of the world, the people that we have seen already and those we'll see in the second service have made a decision to be followers of Jesus Christ, to put uh, real feet uh, to their faith, not only now in, in this moment but for the rest of their lives. And so you have seen a sermon before the sermon this morning, and you have lived that out. And that's a good church, right? A good church is where in our time of worship together, we are preaching sermons to one another even before the preacher gets up and gives what we call the sermon at that time. And so I am blessed to be a part of this assembly of people who long to live out real faith in real life uh, each and every day and especially uh, today, this Sunday. But grab your Bibles if you haven't and turn to the book of James. We're in the middle of this letter where James has been telling these first century Christians who are scattered because of persecution what it means to live out a faith that might change the world. But as uh, is the case today, there are many in our midst that find themselves having their faith eroded because of all kinds of temptations, all kinds of distractions that keep us from living the vibrant and healthy faith that God has called us to live. Now James has spent three chapters already addressing what it means to live out a faith. And like a jackhammer has chiseled away at some of our thoughts and some of our presuppositions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and living out our faith according to him and his word. Now he does so not because he hates these people. He has said over and over again in our text that they are beloved people. He loves these people and he wants nothing more than to help them find the blessing that God promises to give. And as we read this, we must be reminded that God, who is the first author of this book, and then second, of course, James, that God longs for us to live in communion with him. God longs for us to dwell, as we're going to learn in our text today, with him. But in order to receive that blessing, in order to live out the godly wisdom that God wants us to have, there are certain things we must do to align ourselves with that. God says either you can choose godly wisdom or you can choose worldly wisdom. And in that response, it's going to lead you down two paths. And this morning, James is going to address what the path of going the way of the world might look like. And he gives us in clear words, with clear understanding, a warning towards worldliness. And before we get into that, let's see what he has to say in James chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 6. He goes with a question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We could go on with this thought in verses 7 through 12, but we're going to leave it to next week, and we're going to look at this warning that James gives us this morning about what it means to be worldly. Something for many of us in the church have kind of a warped idea of what that word means. Some of us have no idea what that word means, and we want to address that this morning and understand how God wants us to approach our relationship with the world so that it will honor Him in all that we say and do. But let's pray. Father God, we come before You, and we ask a blessing on the reading of Your Word. We thank You that Lord, we live in a country where we can read it without fear of retribution. Lord, thank you for this time that we can gather together, a time where we can open your word and we can see lived out in the example of first century Christians what it was like to follow you. Lord, allow us to see their example, both good and bad, so that we might know how we ought to live. Thank you for James's words, his pastoral heart. Though these words are tough, though these words at times uh, strike at the very essence of who we are and we want to push back against it, Lord, I'm thankful for these tough words and what they mean because I know they come from a loving Heavenly Father. And Lord, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you love us, even though at times we find ourselves cheating on you. You forgive us when we fail you. And Lord, when we find ourselves lacking the grace that is needed, it is you, we learn in this text, that gives more and more and more grace. As we've just sung, Lord, there's not a moment that you have forsaken us. And for that, we say, we love you and we thank you. Now teach us this morning through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Years ago, there was a show on television that I would occasionally watch fully knowing what was going to take place. Every episode uh, had the same plot, and I could have told you how it was going to go as soon as the show started. Wholesome kid from some obscure part of the country uh, who had some special talent. This obscure uh, young person, through a course of events, is allowed opportunities to showcase their talents. As a result of that, at some point they are discovered by someone in the industry. Someone who sees their talent and says, we got to get this out to the rest of the world. You're a star and you just don't know it. And then what begins to happen is there's either a record deal or some sort of of movie contract that is brought uh, into uh, the spotlight. And this individual moves into the industry being catapulted from obscurity into fame and notoriety. 
this meteoric rise into acclaim and fortune goes on for a while. And during that time where they are on top of the world, all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of passions, all kinds of opportunities to fall into all manner of vices and sin become available to this individual. They live the days of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and seemingly they enjoy every moment of it. But at the pinnacle of their career, at the pinnacle of their journey, something takes place. Either their music isn't in vogue anymore, or the movies they make are not the box office hits they once were. And what begins to happen as quickly as it did on the front side is their fame and fortune, their notoriety falls apart. And then they begin to speak of the loss. They speak about the addictions. They speak about uh, the impact of broken relationships that they now suffer from. What is the show? It's every episode of E, the true Hollywood story. And here's the crazy thing. It is relived over and over and over again. You see, there's something about the world that we want to gain. There's something about the world and having people fawn all over us. There's something about having the accolades of crowds and and cheering fans in arenas that warm our heart. There's something about that that ignites something deep within us that says, I want more. But as I used to watch those biographies of those famous actors and musicians, the scripture that would always come to mind is Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end forfeits his soul? Today we talk on the subject of worldliness because James picks up this subject matter on the heels of wisdom. And he's saying, we got to get our heads straight. Something my parents used to tell me all the time. Put your head on straight so that you'll think rightly. We're told in the book of Romans that we are not to conform ourselves to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So James has said last week, listen, transform your mind. Get your mind set. Get your mind focused. You're either going to focus on the things of God or focus on the things of the world. And what he says now is, listen, if you focus in on the things of this world, trouble's going to come. Oh, you may think it's opening the door to all kinds of pleasures and all kinds of possessions and all kinds of opportunities, but as we learned earlier in the text last week, every kind of disorder takes place when our ambition is to pursue the world instead of God. And we, in a very small way, play out that true Hollywood story. We could play out that story in the lives of many people here today. Many people who thought that they could gain the whole world and in the process lost their soul. Who gained the whole world and now are fighting the issues of addiction, fighting the consequences of sin. We can live out that story. And sadly, our neighbors and our friends and even followers of Jesus Christ find themselves living that story out each and every day. The issue of worldliness. Now, worldliness is a word that you hear in the, in the church a lot. And maybe you, you hear it, but you don't know what they're talking about. If you're new to the church, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, what is this idea of worldliness? Well, worldliness is a word we must examine. 
If we're going to be warned against it, surely it's something bad. Surely it's something we need to stay away from. And so we see that worldliness, while it's been around the church for some time, all the way back to the first century, it's a biblical word. We need to understand what it is. Well, worldliness is a term we use when Christians have gotten too cozy with the world. They've gotten too cozy with the world. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we can't enjoy the things of this world, that we can't enjoy our, our lives? Uh, what, it, what it means is, is that we become cozy with the practices and pursuits of the world. That as the world goes for its own desires, its own wants, we have followed suit. We're pursuing the same things that the world is. And here's the problem. For unbelievers, that's no problem at all. For Christians, our pursuit must be God, and it must have God at the center of all that we say and do. And so when we say no to God and yes to the world, because we're going to learn they're enemies of one another, we are choosing the enemy of God, following that enemy instead of following our God who loves us and who has saved us and who, as we're learning later in the text, gives us greater grace. Amidst all that God does for us, instead of choosing Him each and every day, we pursue and cozy ourselves up to the pattern of this world. David Wells, a theologian and professor, put it this way with regards to worldliness. And I I love this definition. And I'll explain why this definition is so important as we get a little later into this first point. David Wells says this. Write this down in your outline. Worldliness, worldliness is anything, is anything that makes sin look normal. It's anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. Anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. I was struck by this when my children were watching um, a, uh, a TV show or a movie not too long ago in our family room. And there were some practices that were going on in that that as I was watching it, the producers of the show made certain activities that God clearly defines as sin, as as things that we should run away from, that we should flee from, as looking as if normal. And I had to stop and I had to say, wait a minute, while I'm able to discern those things, what I need to be careful with as a mom or as a dad is I need to be careful because my children don't have that ability to discern between that. And we have these things bombarding us on a daily basis where the world says this sin that God says stay away from, Christian, it is viewed as not only normal, but as the beautiful thing, the righteous thing, the glorious thing, when in fact God says at times it's an abomination before him. You see, we need to be careful because when we allow sin to look normal, we're on the road to worldliness. And what we're going to learn this morning is that inclination is within us all. It's within us all. And so he says, be careful of anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Have you ever been in the workplace? Have you ever been in a, in a community gathering where you have taken a stand for what the, what the Bible says, what the Word of God says is, is godliness, and someone looks and says, well, that's the oddest thing I've ever heard. Why would you do that? Why would you pursue that? 
Studies are telling us that um, because of the rise of cohabitation, that in 50 years, which may seem like a long time to you, in 50 years, a, a relationship of a husband and wife in a lifelong commitment of marriage will not be the norm. It will be an oddity. It will be strange to people. I've been in groups of people uh, that are surprised when I've told them how long I've been married. I've never considered divorce. That seems strange. Doesn't every couple consider divorce from some time or another? And, and surely the numbers spell it out that, that we should give up at, at times because of the hardships with regards to our marriage. That's when righteousness seems strange to the world. It, it, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you commit yourself to that? One famous actress recently said uh, that people are not given to uh, monogamous relationships. And that it seems odd that you would commit yourself in such bondage to one person when you should be free to do as you will. Righteousness seems strange and sin looks normal. That is worldliness. Now, where do we get it in the scriptures? Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians that we are to come out of the world and be separate. John the apostle says in 1 John, we are not to love the world. Peter says that we are to abstain from the fleshly appetites of the world. But that's not the whole story. Because if that was all that we understood from the scriptures, and some churches would say that's why we have no involvement with the world, we separate ourselves completely and utterly from the world, we focus inwardly, and we don't address the issues outwardly. Because if we go out there, we're going to fall to sin. And there's some truth in that. But Jesus prays in John 17, he says, God, my Father, here's my prayer for you, that you would not take out my children from the world, but keep them from the evil one. What Jesus is saying is, I want my followers to be in the world, but not of the world. Now that's a hard place to live. It would be far easier for us as people just to say, you know what, we're going to stay away from the world. We're not going to touch the world. We're not going to be involved in anything that might defile us or, or, or distract us from our walk with God. But Jesus says, listen, I want you in the world. I want you to engage the world, but I don't want you to become one of them. What I want to call that is a life intention. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I live in a perpetual state of tension. This life of tension goes this way. How can I avoid being tainted by the world but be engaged with the people of the world? How can I go from separating myself from the world but be in loving relationships with people who are lost, who are in the world? How do I keep myself from doing the practices and pursuing the fleshly appetites of the world but engaging with people and living life with people who find themselves engaged in those practices? How do I do that without myself falling into sin? That's a problem. Now, as we approach this, there are two things you can do. Write this down somewhere on the side, and don't worry, I'm getting to my first point. The first way that you can go about worldliness, and we do this a lot, the majority of Christians find themselves doing this, that is we make lists. We make lists. We put on the top of the sheet of paper worldliness, and we start listing all of the things that we believe to be worldly. 
going to movies and, and smoking and, and music and, and all of these manner of things that we list out and write out. Because we know the Bible said, thou shalt not go to movies, right? That was the 11th commandment. And we say, well, these come from the Scriptures. And the problem is, is they, in fact, don't. They come from personal preferences. They come from personal positions of holiness. And we see that in the Bible, personal preferences of holiness. Uh, The people that held those were called Pharisees, and they had their lists, and they walked around in the church services or in the temple and synagogues, and they would hold their clipboard, and they would cross off all the things that they saw people doing that were on their list of being worldly. And if you want to know who they focused their most time and attention on, it was Jesus, And even with the perfect Son of God, according to their list, they could find things that they would cross off and say, listen, this guy speaks on behalf of the devil. That's how bad he is at following our lists. And so what we do is we gather these lists of things. So when a person comes out of the baptismal tank, we say, listen, the world is a bad place to be, so don't go too far in there. It brings you no good. So stop living in the culture. And here's the amazing thing about our culture we live in today. We can totally separate ourselves from the ungodly, bad culture of the world. And now Christians, aren't you so happy now we have a Christian subculture? You don't have to chew gum from the world. You can chew minty Christian gum. Okay? You don't have to see all the bad movies that are out there because every movie is bad. You can watch bad Christian movies. Okay? You don't have to listen to that ungodly music that, that plays drums and has guitars. No, we'll Christianize it and we'll put a Christian label on it. We'll say it's family friendly. There's a Christian subculture. Why? Because we say there's a list that we have to follow with regards to worldliness and we want to stay away from that. And so we create a whole new thing of list of what we can do. Let me tell you, lists never work. They never work. And so what it moves us to is it moves us to isolation. It moves us to what I call the boogeyman syndrome of Christianity. So we come together in this place, and we look outside the world, and we say, that place is filthy, that place is no good, that that world that we live in has no value to it, no inherent goodness to it, and and I'm going to tell you that's theologically flawed. Because while the earth and and people are marred by sin, God's goodness, his imago Dei, his image bearing that each of us carry is still alive and well in each human being. And instead of isolating ourselves and keeping ourselves from the world, God is calling us to engage the world. How sad is it that much of ministry during Jesus' day was viewed as worldliness. Jesus was condemned by the Pharisees of the day for hanging around with drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors. They fought the very ministry that Jesus was a part of because they thought hanging out with those people was worldly. It was on their list. How much of Jesus' ministry would have been omitted from the Scriptures had the Pharisees been able to live out that list? How much of our ministry is left undone because we've created lists that tells people in the world we can't be around you. 
we can't engage with you. So what do we do? The second thing, lists don't work. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. A mindset, first of all, as we learned in our text last week, that is founded in the Word of God. It knows the truth. It perpetually lives within the wisdom of God. It is a life that is pure. It's a life that is gentle. It's a life that's open to reason. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial and sincere, and it produces a harvest of righteousness, James said last week. That is the kind of wisdom that we are called to live out. But then the issue that we have to address is, okay, I'm called to engage the world. I'm called to be on the offensive, not the defensive. We talked this last week when when the Bible talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. We think what that means is that the church is is under attack by the devil. It's under attack by the gates of hell. But here's a problem. Gates are defensive, not offensive. And some of us think that we've got to hunker in because the gates of hell are going to try to overpower us. And we're promised that they won't. But nevertheless, the invading armies are on our way. Let me tell you something very clearly this morning. The gates of hell are defensive. Hell is on the defensive, not the offensive. And we are to invade the gates of hell. And we are to run against the gates of hell. And here's what we are told. The gates of hell will not be able to defend against our offensive offense. He's not going to be able to do it. And so we need to be active in engaging the world. And how do we do it? Because there is some truth that there's a lot of bad out in the world. And so what are we to do? Are we to never leave our homes? Are we never to allow our children to experience some of the things that are in this world for the sake or the chance that they may uh, fall to that sin? We've got to be careful. And those are hard questions for parents to have to answer. But here's what I know to be true. Each and every day, in fact, today, you got in your car this morning, and you rolled out of your driveway, and you got on a road, and as you were driving, whether you knew it or not, you put your life in total risk. We are told by the NTSB that thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people will be killed in motor vehicle accidents of all kinds and in all kinds of ways. We know it. We've seen it with our own eyes. Whether going from close to home or far away, we've seen short trips and long trips end in disaster as people have entered the car. You know you're putting yourself and your family at great risk and at great peril when you all head out to church. But you came here today. You came here amidst the fears. You came here amidst the chances that great peril might come your way. Why? Because you recognize, you recognize that if you don't do that, life is not going to be all that worthwhile. That you're going to miss out on a lot of what God has called you to. You're not going to be able to fulfill the life that God has led you to live. And so what do you do? As you left this morning, you drove, whether you know it or not, very alert of what's transpiring around you. Very carefully recognizing that if I'm not paying close attention, if I find myself distracted, whether by the cell phone or the kids or, or what's on the radio or, or what's going on on the outside, there's a greater chance that if I am distracted in driving, that I will end 
um, this driving experience in some sort of accident. So it is with life. We have to be vigilant, the Bible says. We have to be watchful and prayerful. As we engage the world, we need to be people who are always prepared for whatever may come our way. Our same approach to driving is the same approach to engaging the world. It's a mindset. Now, James has articulated this, and he says, listen, if you're carrying godly wisdom, you're going to weather the storms of worldliness. But what happens when the storm beats and batters your ability to say no to the world and yes to God? What will begin to happen? Notice first point this morning, the symptoms, the symptoms that surface. You want to know if you are living in a time of worldliness, if your life is engaged in worldliness instead of the heavenly wisdom? Notice what James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. How do we know if we're losing the battle of worldliness? The first symptom is unresolved problems. Unresolved problems. There were fights. There were quarrels. Most commentaries believe that James had heard firsthand from the churches that he's writing to accounts of conflict taking place within the church. And that's nothing new. It was true even before uh, the church was even brought into existence by Jesus. The disciples fought and quarreled. They wanted to know who was the greatest among uh, each of them. We saw fights and quarrels amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. Fights and quarrels amongst the godly followers uh, have been going on since the garden. And James says, listen, there are fights and quarrels that are among you. And that still is alive and true today. It was true in this church over a decade ago. We had some real doozies of fights and quarrels. People not getting along with one another. And James says, listen, listen, these fights and quarrels are unresolved. Notice he says the reason why, as we've read throughout the text, why are they fighting? Well, they're fighting, first of all, if we go through the text of James, there were issues of stress in the life of the followers of Christ. They're being persecuted. They've been driven from their homes. And as everybody's on this high level of stress, if you're in the home and there's stress within the home, you know that it's a breeding ground for fights and quarrels. And the church was a breeding ground because they were people who were under great amounts of stress. There was an issue because people were different. We have Jews and Gentiles a part of these churches. And the Jews did things one way, and the Gentiles did things other ways. And the Jews had certain cultural norms, and the Gentiles had other kinds of cultural norms. And they fought against one another with regards to it. We've learned in the text that this issue of classism, rich and poor, and showing favoritism to the rich, and, and not giving the poor the needed time and, and energy that they should have had as people was causing conflict. We learned that the people in James were, quick, were not quick to listen. We're not slow to speak and not slow to become angry. We've learned from James that they allowed their tongues to be used in destructive ways. And as a result, quarrels and fights started and were reigning within the church. Now, what types of fights and quarrels were they? Literally, 
fights and quarrels. They were warring amongst each other. These aren't low-level skirmishes, but this was all-out war. And when you get into an all-out war, your focus, your attention is destroying your enemy. And so here's the body of Christ, followers of the Prince of Peace at war with one another, and their focus is not to worship God, not to uh, esteem Him as uh, the highest pursuit in life. They came to church so that they could um, beat up and knock down and destroy their opponents. Notice how far this went. He says that they murdered as a result. Now, one thing we got to be careful with, we read that and say, okay, he must be speaking figuratively. I want you to know in the text, up to this point and after it, there's no figurative language. He's not speaking in hyperbole. Most commentators believe that this isn't that they murdered the other people's reputations, but that there was even in their fights and quarrels, someone had lost their life. Followers of Jesus Christ literally killing other followers of Jesus Christ because of the issues and passions that were alive in the life of those Christians. They were wars that led to murder. Now what what caused them? Notice these problems were caused because of phrases like, you do not have, you cannot obtain, you do not receive. Now why would not having something or not being able to get something be an issue. Because worldly wisdom, as we learned last week, tells us that we as individuals are God. We're God. And worldly wisdom says that because you and I are gods, we deserve everything we want, when we want it, how we want it. Worldly wisdom steals from Burger King their motto, have it your way anyway, anytime, any place. You're the king. We, we march to your drum. And when someone doesn't allow us to have what we want, and if we view ourselves as God, we will do everything in our power to make sure that that person knows you cannot test God in that way. Now, we see this illustrated. We could all take a journey down to the nursery this morning, and we could watch two young children vying for the same toy. And we have watched and we have laughed because it is so funny to watch these little sinful savages see something they want and they can't have it. And quite frankly, someone else has it. In the Badal home this last week, a quarrel and fight broke out because one of our sons had this new decoder pen that would write with invisible ink and then the other side was a flashlight which you could write on there. And one son wrote after he had quarreled with his brother, I hate my brother. And he gave him the flashlight. He said, see what I wrote? What do fights and quarrels come out from? Because we do not have what we want. And we think we deserve it. And so we will destroy anyone who gets in our way. And the problem is it's funny in the nursery. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see within the church. Unresolved problems. James says, listen, when selfish ambition is a part of our life, in the text before uh, this one, he says, every disorder will ensue, and it was. Second, uncontrolled passions. James hits this numerous times in the text. You might want to underline these words, passions, desire, covet, to spend it on yourself. Here within these words is a life that's focused in not on the things of God, 
but on the things of self. A desire to satisfy not the God of the universe, but you who think you are the God of this world. But what's doing this? Worldliness. Worldliness is driving us. Now, how do you know if the world is driving you? Let me ask you a couple questions. What do you dream about? Are they the things of God? Are they the pursuits of God? Are they so that you can become closer to God? Or that you might have a bigger house, a better car, a nicer spouse, that new piece of technology? What do you dedicate yourself to? Is it to the work of God, the kingdom work in in the world that God is a part of? Are you joining that construction process? Or are you building your own kingdom? Are you building your own temples so that you might be worshipped, you might be adored instead of God? This is something that we all struggle with. Where does it come from? Notice he says there are different kinds of passions that are waging war within us. Now remember what he said about temptation. Passions in and of themselves are not sin. They're things that God has given. Now the question is, will I pursue my passions according to God and His Word, or will I pursue them according to my ways and my time frames? We've got to figure out and make that decision. Worldliness advertises everywhere we go. You have dreams, you have desires, and you can fulfill them apart from God in what the world provides. Let me remind you that if you were to go to Matthew chapter 4, you would be reminded that's the same line of attack that the devil used against Jesus. Have it all and have it apart from your Father's hand. Get it for yourself. Worldliness says you can do it on your own. But how do we know if our passions are out of control? We have to do a heart check. So let me ask these questions this morning What do I treasure? One thing that Amanda and I do is we'll look at our checkbook and we'll ask the question, does this checkbook say that we reign supreme or God does? Are we generous towards ourselves? Are we generous towards others? Because God, if anybody had the right to be generous towards himself, it was God. And what do we see? God gave, God gave, God gave. God could have kept it all for himself without sin, but he doesn't. He gives. What does your checkbook say about your treasure? Your greatest desire. What about your time? Does your time say that you're enlisted in the army of God? That you're enlisted as a follower of God to invest your time and energy in His ways and in His paths and not our own? Our treasure and our time are key indicators of whether worldliness is alive and well in our lives. Notice the next thing he brings up is unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers. Notice worldliness affects, first of all, our relationship with self, these passions that wage war within us, your relationships with others, fights and quarrels amongst yourselves, and then our relationship with God in prayer. James says worldliness is detected in our lives. Listen, when prayer is missing. If you want to know this morning, hey, Tim, I don't know whether I am worldly or not. Here is the number one way you can figure it out. If none of those other ways help you, here's one way you can figure it out. How much this last week did you find yourself in prayer? How much this week did you find yourself going to God instead of the world? 
How much did you find yourself this week relying in dependence upon God and not your self-reliance or the reliance upon the world? Prayerlessness, as he says, we do not have because we do not ask. Their prayer was absent. And James' words could be preached to us today. Is our prayer absent? Do we really think we can live this life on our own apart from God? Your prayer life will tell the tale. It will tell the world whether you believe in what God says or you're focused in on the world. Now, this could be because you're distracted. You're distracted by the things of this world and you try to pray and you seek to pray, but uh, the things of the world cramp your ability to do so. Maybe you're deceived in thinking you don't need it. I got it all figured out. I got plenty of money in the checking account. I've got a great relationship with my spouse. My kids are doing well. My job is good. I don't need prayer. Maybe you've bought into this idea that prayer has disappointed you because it doesn't avail much. Well, James is going to address that in James chapter 5 where he says the prayers of a righteous man do avail much. They do accomplish things. Prayer is the lack a prayer or the lack thereof is a telltale sign that we are without God and his guidance. The second thing that happens is we pray, but we pray for the wrong thing. So there's one group, they don't pray at all. God says that's worldly. And then there are those who pray, but their times of prayer are so focused in on themselves, they're using God as this perpetual genie, give me, give me, give me. And as a result of that, you have a part of God in your life. And some of us are okay with part of God. Because here's the crazy thing. A Christian who has God as a secondary portion of his life is way more than what the world has. So if we use or have a little bit of God, a side of God on our plate of worldliness, that's a whole lot more God than most plates of people's have. And so we feel good about ourselves. But we use God as a means to the end as not the purpose for life. If God only plays a part in our life, the question we have to ask is, do we have God in our life at all? Because God demands all of it. Unanswered prayers, uncontrolled passions, and unresolved problems. As you evaluate your life, are you living a life in some ways as a worldly Christian? We all have to ask those questions. Well, what, how does it take place? Notice there's a slide that sets in. There's a slide that sets in. It, it, worldliness doesn't just happen all at once. It moves ever so slowly. Notice at the end of verse 4, it, it begins what I want to say with an attraction. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. Whoever wishes. Uh, this was incredibly tr- uh, troubling for me. As I thought back to my teenage years, because as a teenager and as a young adult, I wished to be in the world. I knew I couldn't be, but I wished I could be there. I longed for the ability for myself not to be tied in and burdened with the things of God so I could enjoy life. i got to be honest with you, at times, especially when I come home, and I'm driving home into my neighborhood, and I see my neighbors, and they are out on a Sunday afternoon enjoying life, playing with the kids, washing their car, cleaning their garage, making sure their yard looks way better than the Badal's yard does, that I sit there and say, what kind of life am I missing? Why am I wasting my time doing what I'm doing when I could? They seem happy 
They seem full of joy. Their yard looks way better than your yard looks. What would happen if I would stop giving to the Lord the amount that I could now spend on myself? You see, when we wish and fantasize about what the world offers, we are moving down the slippery slope. It starts with attraction. It starts with attraction. Notice then it moves to an acquaintance. We become a friend. Now there's a a spectrum of which a friend is a part of. A friend starts out as an acquaintance, an associate. We start having some commonalities with one another. And worldliness can be summed up in the old biblical adage, bad company corrupts good character. Do your associates in this world bring you down? Or do you bring them up? We have to ask that question about our friendships with the world. I have lots of friends that are outside of the church and in the world. And I have to always ask the question, are they bringing me down in my relationship with God or am I drawing them closer to God because I'm living out Christ-likeness before them? God doesn't want us in relationships that are going to keep us far from Him. He wants us in relationships that bring and draw people closer to Himself. Jesus came to earth so that He might closely associate with us, not so that we might bring Him down, but that He might bring us up. And so our acquaintances are going to become a problem. And in order to make sure that you don't live out allowing them to knock you down. And I know this is a question that a lot of you have. How do I live in the world with friends who do things contrary to the Word of God? And how do I show them what Christ is like? Let me tell you, you need to do a DTR. You need to define the relationship. You need to be clear to your friends, to your neighbors. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I love Jesus. I love His Word. And what I'm taught by Jesus and His Word is that I'm to love you, and I do. I love you. I'm not going to sit here and just judge you. I'm not going to sit here and tell you how bad of a person you are, because that's not how Jesus operated with me. I'm going to show you love and affection. I'm going to be your greatest advocate. I'm going to be your greatest friend. Uh, There are things that I may not do with you. There are things that I might not be able to do, and it's not because I judge you and say you're terrible and I'm good. I do them because I have a greater friend whose name is Jesus, and I can't betray him. And so I'm going to withhold or refrain. I had an employee some years ago, and I've shared this story before, and my employee has never been a fan of Jesus, never been a fan of his boss being a fan of Jesus. This guy has challenged me numerous times. And one day he came into the office. His world was collapsing underneath him. And with tears in his eyes, this young man of mid-20s, and he's a tough guy. He said, listen, I don't want you to ever think I like Jesus. Don't ever think that I'm buying into this thing that you're doing. But I've come to the conclusion I sure am glad you have. Because you're a different kind of boss. You've been generous You've been forgiving. And if your relationship with Jesus is making that a reality, then I like your relationship with Jesus even though I don't want Jesus. We need relationships like that. I remember that was when I got on the phone and called the man and said, I did something right. It's working. And we need to define that relationship for people. Because what will happen is if we don't, we'll fall on the other side. And we'll go from being an acquaintance, a friend of the world, to being an adulterer. It becomes an affair. You adulterous people, 
You adulterous people, aren't you glad you're here this morning? Strong words, but they ring true. Paul spoke of a man in the book of Colossians who loved the present world more than God. Can that be said of you? He uses the analogy of a marriage. Here's a couple reasons why. It paints a picture, a marriage does, of our relationship with God. Two people being melded into one. God and you and I. Second, it shows what happens when we flirt with the world. We have affairs. Third, it shows us how serious this flirting with the world is. We break and damage the covenant where intimacy was supposed to be found. We now find that intimacy with the world. And fourth, like adultery, which is done in private or secret, one day will become public. You can keep private about your worldliness for a season, but in the end, it will be found out. It will be found out. Now, right away you say, wait a minute, if I've had an affair against God, surely he's divorced me and I'm no longer a believer. Let us be reminded that uh, marital infidelity doesn't break the covenant bonds of marriage. It doesn't destroy it. Oh, it creates problems. It creates problems. It creates issues. But just because adultery has happened in a marriage doesn't mean that that marriage is dissolved. It may take time. It may take energy. It may take a lot of forgiveness. But, but I want to remind you, adulterous people listening to a message from an adulterous pastor, that we have a God who forgives. We have a God who loves. You see, there's a whole book in the Old Testament named Hosea that pictures and shows a real-life story of a prophet with an adulterous wife. And it's a picture of God time in and time out going and loving on that adulterous wife and forgiving her and cleaning her up and bringing him back to himself only to have her run away again. And he goes back and he does the same. We adulterous people can find forgiveness and mercy and grace in God. But what happens when we choose not to? It makes us an adversary. We become an enemy of God. An enemy of God. How could James call Christian followers enemies the same way an adulterer is an enemy to the covenant marriage? Adultery doesn't destroy that covenant. It fractures it. But what the adulterer is doing to his marriage, to her marriage, is attacking the very marriage that they are supposed to uphold. When we become friends of the world, we attack the God who we are called to love. And God's going to see that. And God says he's going to oppose that. He's going to fight against that. And let me tell you something. You don't want to be opposed by God. You never win. You'll never win that wrestling match. And so God says, listen, when you're an enemy of mine, I'm going to oppose you, proud individual, because you think you can take me, and you can't. So what do we do? We who have become acquaintances to the world, we who have become Uh, filled with all kinds of affairs in the world. We who have become adversaries of the world notice there's a solution to this sin. Take a moment this morning and ask, is there worldliness in me? Am I flirting with the world? Do I see the world as a playground or as a battleground? Sadly, all too many of us have fallen in one shape or another to this insidious foe. But there's a solution. There's salvation. We who are too friendly with the world, we who have cheated on the world, we who have attacked the very God who has loved us, we who stand guilty and condemned are not people without hope. 
Jesus' hope. And James gives us that hope and comfort. In verses 4 and 5, we learn first of all how God operates. Notice what it says. It says, or do you suppose it has no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I want you to know God's like this loving husband. Can I tell you, and and I'm sure this is true of every husband in this place, we will go to great lengths, we will go to any lengths to protect our wives from any kind of trouble, from any kind of pain. Whatever comes our spouse's way, we want to protect them, we want to take care of them, we want to minister to them because we want nothing to happen to them. And, And when someone tries to invade our spouse's lives, we're going to be jealous We're going to do everything in our power to stop that invading army, that invading individual from bringing disgrace to our spouse. And that's what God is going to do. Like a jealous husband who has the right to be jealous, he goes to great lengths to protect you and to cleanse you and to provide for you. And he does so for his glory and for our good. That's how he operates. He loves you. Notice what he offers. He gives more grace. The greatest line in all of the book of James. You've been working, you say, man, James has been nailing us from every direction. I'm growing tired of all that James is nailing me with. I'm so glad this series is almost over because I can't take it anymore. And James says, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Whatever you've done to ruin your relationship with God, remember God gives more grace. No matter how far your sin extends, remember, God's grace goes even farther. No matter the depths that your sin has taken you, remember, God's grace goes deeper. God loves you, God lavishes His love upon you, and He longs to dwell with you. He wants you. Even though you may feel unwanted by the world, God loves you and desires a relationship with you. And so here's what we do, us adulterous people. We run to Jesus. We embrace his love. We rest in his forgiveness. And we dedicate our lives to live for him. That is how we cure ourselves of worldliness. By not doing it in and of ourselves, but relying and resting on the one who can save us.